couple left. <clears throat> and while uh, 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 readers passing those out, keep those hands up uh, before we have prayer. We'll, we'll get those passed out. Uh, we're probably going to spend a, uh, a week or at least at least another week in this particular part of 1 John because there, there's so much to say about it and so many really interesting things to learn from this particular passage. Uh, in some ways, the least of it is all this, uh, this, this Antichrist that, uh, that John refers to in, in the second chapter of, of John, verses 18 through 23. But, but the caveat uh, for tonight is that uh, normally, and, and especially if you've already had a chance to look at the sermon outline tonight, you'll, there's usually some very definite points that, uh, that are being made. And, and they are going to be made tonight, <laughs> but uh, th- this sermon is, uh, you know, you, you write these things and sometimes uh, they, don't, they don't necessarily fit into uh, the, the, the typical way that, that you present, present messages. And so tonight is really going to be more of a stream of consciousness that is going to lay the basis for some of the things that we're going to be thinking about over the next week or two. And uh, with that said... I'm going to ask you to, uh, you'll notice that there's a lot of scripture on that, that page and hopefully there is some white space on there for you to, the, the things that you find very important, that you find uh, a touching, poignant, pungent for, for your learning, uh, you know, go ahead and write those down. There's, there's a, a couple of places where I want to make sure that there's a couple of uh, foundational truths that you get. So we have those uh, for you to write, fill in some blanks and the, the, uh, the slides will be up on the screen to make sure that you catch it. But, uh, but really, I'm, I'm asking you to, to kind of follow the flow of, of this message and to listen carefully as, as we talk about uh, uh, kind of this beginning uh, set of, of ideas or, or teachings that John is giving us that, that we're going to be calling the liar tonight out of 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. And the timing for that explanation has worked out perfectly for us to go ahead and pray. I think all of the outlines have been passed out. Let's bow our heads, join our hearts, and ask God to bless us. Father, grateful, grateful, grateful are we in our hearts for the new way that you are teaching us to think about our life and, and, and through John's writings that we're inspired by your Spirit and guided by your Spirit. We're, we're learning a new way to live, a new, a new way to think, a new, a new way to believe and, and be as disciples of Jesus in this world, Father, and this culture. And, and in this particular community. We ask with all of our heart that you bless us with understanding. And not just with understanding, but that, that understanding from your word, that it go all the way down into our heart so that we are, we are not just inspired, but, but that we are changed. And that we live out the ramifications, the implications for, for John's teaching everywhere we go. And not see our, our life as categorized that uh, there's, there's a part of our life that is under your lordship and then there's the rest of it that is under our own control and under the auspices of our own, our own intelligence and thinking. But that all of life, Father, we, we pray that we see it as, as under the umbrella and the guidance of your lordship and your wisdom and the ways that it comes to us through this word. And through the way that your Spirit in us, Father, helps to sanctify our thinking and, and to, to understand what this Word means. Father, bless us with eyes that see and ears that hear. 
And we ask this in the name of the one who made it possible, our Savior, our, our Master, our Lord Jesus. Amen. As you know, Ellen and I lived uh, in Brazil for a number of years as, as missionaries. They were, they were great years. We thoroughly enjoyed uh, those years and, and were immensely blessed uh, by, by our experiences working with, with the church in the capital of Brazil. And, uh, but as hard as we tried to assimilate ourselves into that culture there, and as successful as we were in doing that and learning the language and learning the customs and, and, and learning you know, what to eat and what not to eat, it was obvious by our skin color, it was obvious by, by the accent that we had when we spoke Portuguese, as well as you know, the grammatical mistakes that we made, that we were not from Brazil. And uh, uh, for the first couple of years that we lived in Brazil, there was at least one time a day that I was asked this question. Where are you from? And Ellen and I would always answer the United States. And then you'd see this, oh, that makes sense, kind of a look on the, on the face of the Brazilian, and you know, we'd get on with what we were doing. There was one day, though, when I was asked, I, I had a actually been looking for a lawyer's office for some, for some uh, documents that our church was needing uh, to have uh, uh, worked on. <laughs> and I, I asked this fellow uh, where the, the, the lawyer's office was, and he told me, you know, great, great directions, found it easily. But before, uh, before I left, he goes, uh, you're not from around here, are you? And I said, no. And he goes, where are you from? And I said, why don't you guess? And he looked at me for a little bit, and he said, you're from Japan. <laughs> I said, how did you ever guess? <laughs> well, nearly all the time we answered we were from the United States. But the funny thing is, you know, they, they would ask us, where are you from? We would always answer, we're from the United States. No one ever asked a follow-up question, being, are you sure? Are you sure? Paul writes at the end of Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Either ha you have the rights and the responsibilities of citizenship, or you don't. Can you know that you are a citizen of heaven the same way that you know you are a citizen of the United States? Now, a lot of people today would, would consider that to be kind of an arrogant piece of knowledge to say to somebody. That, yes, I know for sure that I know God, that I am a, a, a member, a, a citizen of His kingdom, I'm a member of His family, that one day I will see Him face to face. I know without a shadow of a doubt that I'm His. A lot of people think that that's arrogant. I mean, how can you really know? John thinks you can. And he writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, we know that we have come to know Him. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I'm writing these things. He's writing at the end of this, this letter now. And he's writing to, to people who have this question, can we really know? And he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may what? Know. So that you may what, church? Know. That you have, two words, eternal life. Say that with me. Eternal life. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, he says, our fellowship. Notice that he's not saying that, you know, all we have, all we can, we can best hope for is the knowledge of some facts. 
Notice that he goes way beyond that. He doesn't, he doesn't say that we can know about God. He says that we can know God. And he describes that knowing not as, 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 as sort of an acquaintanceship. It's, it's fellowship. That there's this interchange, there's this personal exchange that happens in relationship between a believer and God. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It's no more arrogant to say that you are going to heaven, that you know God, than it is to say that you're a citizen of the United States. And the reason for that is that Christianity is a standing. In, in one way of describing it. It doesn't matter what it is that you have done for God, but what matters is what it is that God has done for you. The standing that He has given you. In fact, this same John, interestingly enough, in chapter 1 of the Gospel, verse 12 says, Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, the same kind of vocabulary that you find in the letter, He gave the what? Rights. He gave the rights. To become children of God. I mean, there it is. There it is. To be a Christian is to have received those rights and to know that God says, this one belongs to me. This one is a part of my kingdom. It is, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, to move from one kingdom that is darkness because of what Christ has done for you into another kingdom that is light. And as we talked this morning, either you have Christ's righteousness and it's wrapped around your heart like a breastplate or you don't. So how do you know? Well, John says that there are three experiences and I, I'll have to admit that there, there is as we go, and I've told you about my uh, sort of this, this love affair with, with uh, the Johanna and Epistles since, uh, since graduate school 30, uh, 25 years ago. And, and, the, and the temptation is to really bog down, but I, I, I do want us to keep us moving through this great epistle. So he gives us three experiences that we've, we've kind of touched on, but we'll, we'll, we'll drill in a little bit deeper. We'll spiral into it deeper and deeper as we go through this letter because he, he as a cycle, kind of goes through these three experiences through this letter. But the first one is, do you obey his commands? We know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. Is there a character change that you have experienced since you have become a disciple of Jesus? Is there a lifestyle change? That the things that are important to God, the things that, 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 that make God smile, that make Him happy, are the exact kinds of things that make you smile and make you happy. The things that break God's heart, are they the things that break your heart? Do you see the world the way that... That, 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 that God does. And the ways that He calls us to live, do you see that kind of calling have an effect in your life in the way that you obey those commands and His will is not burdensome, but a liberating thing? Well, do you obey His commands? Do you have that experience? And then number two, do you have the experience of a changed relationship with, with, with the brothers? Do, do you love the brothers? Are your relationships different? Are you more loving today than you were before you were a, a disciple of Jesus? And then number three, do you confess that Jesus has come in the flesh? Do you, do believe, do you confess that Jesus has, has come as the Son of God in the flesh? That is, is there this experience of the Gospel in all of its fullness and richness but not just as a knowledge, but it's impacted your life and the experience of knowing that Christ came. 
that Christ came because we needed Him to come. And He traveled the distance of, of heaven to our flesh, however far that is. It just seems like an infinite distance to me. But He traveled all of that distance in order for us to be able to get to where He is. And it's this last one of confessing Jesus as the Son of God that I want to spend the rest of our time tonight. And this is also where we're introduced to this, this murky character has become sort of infamous, infamous in our culture uh, in, in, in Western evangelical circles, the Antichrist. Well, what's this all about? For a moment, I'm going to ask you to forget everything that you've ever heard about end-time prophecies, about Armageddon, about uh, you know anything like that. that. What we want to do is we want to look at what John says, and, uh, and what John says is that this Antichrist, in connection with this Antichrist, is that there were some people that were once a part of them, a part of this community of faith in Asia Minor, where I believe it was written and, and addressed to, John says that there were some people that were once a part of that Christian community that went out from them, and their leaving showed that they did not, believe, uh, that they did not belong to this group, that they are people that look like Christians, that look like disciples, but are not. In fact, they were counterfeit. These are people that were once part of that community, but they were false. Now, how did John know this? Because they did not experience the doctrinal core of the gospel that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Christ. You see, one, one of the things that John helps us to understand in 1 John is that Christianity is, is, on one side of the coin, is a very experiential religion in the sense that you have this fellowship with God. It's not just... It's not just knowing about God, but it's knowing God too. And, and it's, it's experiencing changes in your character. It's, it's it, experiencing changes in all of your relationships. You're more loving in your relationships because you have experienced the love of God personally in your own heart. That's one side of the coin, but that coin has a, another side. It has a flip side. There is a doctrinal core to Christianity, Christianity as well. There are hard facts. There is content that you have to recognize in order to be a disciple of Jesus. These are challenging things. They're challenging facts that you have to believe. And they're challenging in the sense that you have to bend your will to them. And if you don't, then you're not a Christian. Now when it comes to that kind of truth, there's a, there's a lot of heartburn in our culture today. Because there are two views of truth that are running, and, and they're not new truths, quite frankly, but they just kind of go in and out in terms of how contemporary and relevant they are. But there are these two truths today. One is that we exi exist apart from the truth. We exist apart from the truth, and because that tr that's true, because that's what's believed, then, then the, the practical side of that is that we are the ones then that construct truth. We are the ones that shape truth. Truth becomes the way that you want to build it. Truth becomes the thing that, that you can shape. That's very contemporary. The flip side of that is that truth exists apart from us. Meaning that there is a reality. A reality that sooner or later shapes us. I'll ask you, church, which one do you think John is getting at in this text? Notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 22. Who 
is the what? Who is the what? The liar. Circle that word. That's a strong word. He goes on to say, it is the man who denies that Jesus is the what? The Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Now, John does not say that this is my truth, and if you don't believe it, well, I mean, you're entitled to your own truth. No, he says that person is a what? A liar. There can be. What John is, is, is helping us to understand in that having fellowship with God, having an experience of God in our life, experiencing that, that, that change of character because we're obeying the command, having that change of lifestyle and relationship with brothers and sisters because we've experienced the love of God personally in our own heart, that's not all there is to it. There are truths that have to be believed and there is no compromising those essential truths. Think about it this way, and I even hate to use this, this illustration. Uh, you know, suppose many, many years, I, I pray this many years down the road, I become a widower. And I'm explaining to this person that I meet, who, you know, we're sitting down at the Starbucks, as people are, are known to do at the Starbucks, and order your coffee, and you kind of have a conversation with the guy that's sitting at the table. And I begin to talk to that guy that I've never met before about my wife, Ellen. And I talk about our life together, and I talk about all the things that we experience. I talk about her being the mother of my children and, and, and the wife that she has been to me and all of these, these things about her. And, and at the end of that conversation, this young person says to me, I don't think that you were ever married to such a person. I don't think you were ever married to such a person as that. In fact, I don't think that that person ever existed. Then the person who denies Ellen would be a liar. Because she did exist. Because all of those things were a reality. In fact, I would call him the anti-Ellen. <laughs> they are a liar, not because they are spouting an opinion, but because they are denying a reality that is as real as rocks. That person that I am talking to about my wife is who denies that I was married to Ellen, that person is in the grip of a lie. Now, as a general aside, John doesn't say that you beat the liar soundly about the head and shoulders. But that person is a liar. And as little wishy-washy or unwishy-washy, non-wishy-washy, I don't, I don't know how you say that, but you know what I'm saying. As, as little wishy-washy as I am about the reality of my relationship with Ellen, I am even less wishy-washy about the reality of Jesus as the Son of God. It is the Antichrist who is the one who denies that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, this is probably, although there's been a whole lot written about it, a lot of argumentation, what John is writing here is probably a confrontation with with the teachings of Plato, the Platonic uh, uh, teachings that were prevalent in that part of the world, probably e even more so the Gnostic-type uh, teachings that, that were prevalent during this period of time. And as you know, both Plato and the Gnostics had the same thing to say about matter. Matter, the material world, the physical world, utterly bad. It's horrific, it's horrible, it's to be done away with, it's to be disdained. It's the spirit that is good. 
And the issue is for, for the Gnostic. The issue with the person of the, the Platonic world is, is whether or not, if God is really deity, the way that you're describing it as deity, would He, could He, should He become something as base, something as basic as the flesh? You see, in that, in that worldview, God can't be tethered to a, a base human need like hunger. If He's God, He can't be hungry. If He's God, He can't be tired. If He's God, He can't suffer. If He's God, He can't die. Jesus was a wonderful man, they say. Jesus was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. But Son of God, eh, I don't, I don't see it. What John says is that if you miss that doctrine, you miss Christianity altogether. The doctrine of the incarnation, which is God becoming flesh, says that our situation was so dire, so drastic, that no other measure could could accomplish what needed to be accomplished if there was ever going to be redemption. That our, our, our situation was so, so drastic that no other measure, no other way would succeed. We are so horrifically sinful that we could not go to God. But God had to come to us. Therefore, anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, that He is the Son of God, the Christ, is changing, changing, brothers and sisters, the gospel. Now, what does that have to do with us? I, I wouldn't know a Gnostic from, from, from a Yankee if I ever saw one. So, what does that have to do with us? Well, in our own time, to, to, deny, uh, to, to deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, it, it's not only, I think, prevalent in the secular culture where, where, where people are, are, are really struggling with the whole idea of God and there being something beyond our senses, beyond the physical universe, but even within some Christian traditions, there is the denial that Jesus came as God in the flesh. That there is nothing of deity that is a part of the existence of Jesus as we know Him. That He did not do the miracles because He really wasn't God. That He did not really rise from the grave. That he did not really, you know, he did not really do the miraculous things that he was a little mistaken on some of this, this deity stuff. And that when you find, when you even find, well, let me put it this way. To deny those kinds of things is not to have a liberal versus a conservative Christianity. I mean, you know, when you really think about it, what you have is a completely different religion altogether if you're denying that Jesus is the Son of God. What you're saying, in reality, is that a person, that being a, a good person, is enough. That you don't really need that incarnation. That you don't really need that atonement, the atonement, because you don't really need the death of God's Son as your substitute. He was not God's Son. God's Son did not have to leave heaven to be with us. Do you remember what John said back in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2? He is what? The atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
And not only our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Listen, you can believe that Jesus was not God in the flesh and that his perfect life was a substitute for our sinful one. I mean, you can believe that, but that's not what Christianity teaches. And quite frankly, that's why some people outside of even, you know, the, what we would consider to be the liberal views of the faith, that's why some people hate Christianity. It's because of this, that you can only find God, that you can only go to God through the Father. It's so exclusive that the alternative is really better, that, better, that all good people make it to heaven. You don't need all the, the suffering and the gore and the blood and the suffering of the cross and the atonement. But think about it this way. That's equally exclusive, right? I mean, what about me? That leaves me out. You know, some days, especially on Sundays, on Sundays, I, I, can, I, can, I can make it look pretty good. I can wax an elephant up there, right? And make it look, I can polish it up and make it look pretty good. And, and some days, in truth, I've really got it together. But then there are days when I don't. I know the golden rule. And I know that there are days when I don't keep it. And there are days when I fall short of even the most basic morality of what it means to be a good person. I mean, there are days when I'm not even good at moral efforts. And so if only good people go to heaven, I'm out. And if you ask me, that sounds pretty exclusive. That's why as disciples of Jesus, we never deny Jesus coming as the Son of God because of what that means. What that means is that you and I have come in contact with, with a hope that we live with on a daily basis that changes everything about us. There's a reason that Jesus came in the flesh. It's so that He could live as we live. He lived the life that we should have lived and He died the death that we should have died. And in His doing so, all of our sins were put on Him and all of His righteousness was put on us. There's so much hope in Christianity. And the, and the, bo and the bottom line is that... what You remember the... Uh, some of you are probably too, too young to remember this and some of us are old enough to remember the old... You know... Remember when we used to change the oil ourselves in our car? I mean, we actually knew what an oil filter was. Do you remember the old Fram oil fil uh, filter commercials? There's this mechanic who's working on a car, and he says basically the problem was this guy was a little lazy. This, this woman didn't know what she was doing, didn't change the oil on a regular basis. The motor got hot. The motor blew up, and now they're bringing it to me. And they, if they'd have brought it to me earlier and changed the oil, then we wouldn't be having this big, big expense right now. And you remember how the commercial ends. I mean, ominous words. You remember what he said? You can pay me now, or you can... Pay me later. Church, it's the same thing with this truth. You can recognize that there is more to the universe than just the physical, the physical now. Or you can do it later. Paul tells the church in Philippi that there is a day that's coming when every knee will bow to a certain truth. And that truth is that the Jesus who left heaven and emptied himself 
and let go of, of, of heaven in order to, to, to come and to be like us in the flesh. And not only to live like us, but to live as a servant. And not just as a servant, but one who was obedient even unto death. And not just death, but death on a cross. And in so doing, not only saved us from our sins, but that one was exalted as Lord of the universe. And you can either bend your will to that truth or not. But one day, one day, one day, every knee will bend to it. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. You know, there are lots of ways that our church can minister to you, minister to you tonight. One is by helping you come into relationship with, with God through Jesus. And that is by allowing His righteousness to become your righteousness, to stop trying to gain it on your own merit, on your own effort, through your own intelligence. You know, you can, you can, you can, you can work awfully hard and you, can, and you can spend a lot of money trying to convince everybody else in the world that you're okay. But the bottom line is, is that everything is laid bare before God. And God sees what's in the heart and in the soul. And you can either stop trying to cover yourself up, as we talked about it this morning, or you can allow God through Christ to cover you with His righteousness and to put His Spirit in you and for your sins to be washed away. Or it might be that you've not been really as, as, as dedicated as a disciple as, as you need to be to, to, to the faith, to the, to the obedience of the commands, to, to the, the changed lifestyle, to, to the, the changed relationships with brothers and sisters. You've, you've really not experienced all the things that, that John has described. And so you struggle. We can help you with that tonight as well through prayer and through study and through counsel and through encouragement. But let those needs be known as our shepherds are down here at the front and we stand and we sing this song together.